Hello and welcome to episode 83 of ERRX, a podcast tailored to your clinical needs. I'm your host, Adis Carrick, and in this Expert Talks episode, we're going to be talking about awake and walking ICUs with a very special guest. My guest is a critical care nurse practitioner who now focuses on creating awake and walking ICUs around the world. Her passion is teaching healthcare workers and families about the dangers of deep sedation and educating all of us on her experiences with awake and walking ICUs. She is the host of the Walking Home from the ICU podcast, where I was actually a guest on her show back in episode 62 of ERRX, where we talked about sedation in the ICU in general and focused on propofol. And she also hosts the Walking You Through the ICU podcast, a podcast geared more towards family members with loved ones in ICUs. You can check her out on DaytonICUConsulting.com. And while you're there, make sure to check out her ebook, Perception Versus Reality, Debunking the Myths About Medically Induced Comas. Hello, Callie. Thank you so much for having me. I kind of want to just get right into it. And basically what I want to do with this episode is I just want to introduce my listeners to yourself and um, kind of what your experiences are, what your passions are, and then we can get into the nitty gritty about ICU sedation and focusing in on things that a lot of my listeners have probably never even heard about, which is awake and walking or awake and alert ICUs. And with that, I just want to start with the beginning of your career, both as a nurse and then as a nurse practitioner. Could you tell us about that? Uh, yeah. And actually the beginning of my career helps all of this make a little bit more sense. Um, I was a brand new nurse and I interviewed in a medical surgical ICU in downtown Salt Lake City, Utah. Even in the interview, the nurse manager asked me, would you be willing to walk patients on ventilators? And I was so green that I didn't even know what that meant, but I was eager and I said, yeah, totally. I would love that. Teach me everything. And I didn't know that this ICU was probably the first and the only awake and walking ICU, um, as I now call it. So when I was training and throughout my years there, no one really sat me down to explain, hey, you know what we do here is really unique and the gold standard of evidence-based critical care medicine with the best outcomes. It was just so normal what they do there. So I slid into this environment in which it was assumed that almost every patient would wake up after intubation and usually walk shortly after. No one made a big deal out of it. They treated this process just as routine and essential as hanging an antibiotic. Now I have more experience and I realize how crazy that sounds. And yes. <laughs> so... I guess the only way I can paint the picture is that you walk into the unit in the morning and the patients are waving to you from their rooms, intubated. Um, by about 7.30, the lights are on. Most patients are in the chair, writing or texting to the family or staff. And by like 8.30, it's usually a steady parade of patients doing laps around the unit. You're in rounds and you see your patient walk by with physical therapy and you're like, oh, yep, there's... There's so-and-so that we're just talking about right now, and they're, you know, listening to music, dancing, or or just giving you a thumbs up. It was it's so normal that no one makes a huge deal out of it. Um, even if they're on high settings on the ventilator, they're still usually up and walking unless they can't oxygenate with movement. So, right, there are some exceptions, um, certain indications that necessitate sedation, like active seizures, drug toxicities. I mean, that ICU was 
downtown by the drug park, homeless shelter, has a detox unit in the in the hospital. So, you know, you get a patient on bath salts. Obviously, they're not safe. They're going to need sedation. The severest of alcohol withdrawal, but even that's really rare. To have to intubate someone for that um, and then to have to keep them on sedation for that, um, we just have gotten a lot better at using other um, modalities to treat alcohol withdrawal. Um, inability to oxygenate with movement with ARDS. Um, so even their COVID unit, almost everyone was awake and walking until they couldn't oxygenate with movement and had to be prone and paralyzed. And then it would be essentially a, a pause during that time. And we'd be doing supine trials to see if they could tolerate being supine. And then we'd do awakening trials to see if they could oxygenate with movement. Once they could, there was no longer a need for sedation. And so it was off. Um, sometimes if they have severe hemodynamic instability, you know, if they're on three pressors and tenuous, um, they don't necessarily need sedation. And, and really that wouldn't make sense to give sedation for hemodynamic instability um, in most cases, as that would often with propofol worsen their hemodynamic instability. But maybe they weren't awake and walk, or they weren't totally walking, right? So it's mm-hmm. it's case by case, but really there has to be an actual reason for the sedation. Um, so being intubated right after intubation, they were allowed to wake up and we would walk them right after. And most patients did really well with it. I mean, as far as tolerance and ability to walk. And so I just didn't think it was that novel or that big of a deal. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, and it's just so mind boggling to hear you say it, right? I think in my career in, in the ICU and in the ED, I've only seen one patient walk the halls while intubated. And for you, that was the norm. Um, which is, you know, not the experience for 99.9% of us. What were your thoughts and feelings when you first worked or staffed an ICU that wasn't an awake and walking ICU? Yeah, it's really hard to capture the magnitude of that culture shock. Um, again, I, that was that was the only environment I knew of for critical care. I thought that was I thought that was critical care medicine, right? I was. <laughs> I expected patients to successfully extubate and walk out the doors. So things like tracheostomies, LTAC transfers, and so on were really rare. I mean, if someone wasn't mobilizing for whatever reason, there'd be a discussion saying like, oh my goodness, they could end up in LTAC. Like that was the worst case scenario. Sure. Second, second only to death, right? So um, yeah, I was really oblivious and no one sat me down and said, when you leave, it's going to be different other than one nurse practitioner. That's all she said was, you know, it's going to be different out there. But I was 24 and I wanted new experiences, right? So um, I really thought that that's what she meant. Like there were going to be new experiences, different patient populations, things like that. <laughs> yeah, not a completely different way of practicing because so, now right. you walk into these other ICUs and patients are usually, you know, sedated, you know, rases of negative two, negative three, maybe even negative four, almost around the clock, right? I mean, you would hope not, but that tends to be the case. Um, was that very frustrating for you? I bet you probably ruffled a lot of feathers by trying to wake these patients up and get them off sedation, right? Because I feel like most providers and nurses and probably even some of the pharmacists were just used to having the patient, quote unquote, asleep, right? On the ventilator. Yeah, I know I scared people. Um, I <laughs> yeah. My very first uh, shift, and I have told the story so many times, but I feel like it just captures the mentality and the barriers that we face in the critical care community. Um, I got my patient assignment, my very first assignment in this new ICU, and I just wanted to continue my routine, right? We all have our our groove, 
we have our conveyor belt approach. And so for me, it was doing a full exam, including a neuro exam, talking to the patient, getting them in the chair to wait for physical therapy. And so there was nothing that I can recall um, about this patient's diagnosis or cutie that would make me hesitate to do that, except they were sedated. So I asked my orienting nurse, hey, can I take sedation off and get them up? And she looked at me like I was insane and said, "What? no, they're intubated, which made no sense to me since I just spent years walking hundreds, maybe thousands of patients that were intubated, sometimes on a PEEP of 18 and 100% with vasopressors, right? So to me, though, I just don't, I don't remember that even seeming like a sick patient, but that was the first time I was exposed to the idea that being intubated necessitated sedation. So I innocently said, I know they're intubated, but why are they sedated? <laughs> and she looked even crazier. And I'm sure she was yeah. doubting whether or not I even was an ICU nurse or had any experience, right? And she's like, yeah. because they're intubated. And we just went in circles. Yeah. And I tried to explain, like, I come from somewhere um, where patients, we don't really sedate patients and we walk all of them. Like, don't, don't you do that? Why wouldn't you do that? Um, and they, I got, always got this response of like, oh, well, our patients are really sick. Or you must not have that not must not have been a real IC. That must have been like a long term care unit or something like that. <laughs> sure, like, sure. I don't know. There's a bone marrow transplant unit in the in the hospital, so we get multi organ failure, septic shock, ARDS, fungal pneumonia. You know, we we get some really severe high acuity patients, um, but they were still moving. I I just I didn't I couldn't click, and so I knew how to care for patients that were awake and mobile. The problem is I didn't fully understand. Why? So I didn't have the tools to defend my practice or help the teams understand and allow me to continue that process of care. So unfortunately, I gave up trying to convince them. And I even questioned myself, right? When everyone else thinks something's cool, I'm like, oh, well, maybe these are different patients or, you know. Or maybe I'm wrong. Like, why were our patients walking? Like, maybe they should be more deeply sedated. (laughs) Yeah, I I just didn't know why. And I didn't know, like, I didn't understand the research or the contrast and outcomes or the patient perspective or any of that. So I just took the win in Rome approach and adapted their ways. I'm like, well, I'm just a travel nurse, right? And I just, it makes me sick to admit that. Um, I wish now that I had dug into the research, that I had talked to my former colleagues and had really figured out the truth behind the contrast and practices. But I did notice a huge contrast or difference in outcomes. I missed knowing who my patients were. I saw tons of tracheostomies and LTAC admissions, like it was assumed and a given for most patients on ventilators, that they would just mm-hmm. be tracheated and sent to LTAC. And I couldn't fully piece it together, but it was unlike anything I had seen before. Um, okay, I remember wondering, like, how come these BMT patients, right, that have multi-organ failure, they've been in the hospital for months, they're already so broken down by the time they come to the ICU, but they walk out, out of the ICU, go back to the... BMT unit, how come they do so much better than these patients that come from home that are functional beforehand and now they're not? Why? So I I had little questions like that. I just didn't fully piece it together. But um, I miss the environment and outcomes and those experiences from the awake and walking ICU. So I went back there um, to work as a nurse during my doctorate studies and then started working there as a nurse practitioner. Okay. So you went back to Salt Lake City to work in your, the first ICU where you were a nurse at the beginning of your career? Yep. Got it. And it's kind of a good segue 
to kind of bring us into the next question I have for you, which is how and why did you start this educational journey? You know, your podcasts, your book, your your consulting. Was there something in particular that inspired you? Were you just super frustrated with your experiences at other ICUs that weren't awake and walking ICUs? Like what gave you the the idea and the motivation to start educating about this? Um there were so many things. Um, I, I was working also in the float pool during grad school. So this is a multi-hospital system. But that particular ICU was the only ICU and hospital that practiced that way among all these ICUs. So I was going around, again, to nine to 12 different ICUs. And I saw the same thing as a travel nurse that deeply sedated and mobilized everyone. And then down the road, just a few miles away, it was completely different. So that started my exploration into the research. Um, and so that was interesting and that was enough to spark my attention. But the final straw was um, I was still in grad school and I got on a plane and I sat next to this man who asked what I did for a living. And I told him that I was an ICU nurse and the color just dropped from his face. And he was like in his mid forties, maybe he seemed really healthy, fine, normal. Mm-hmm. Um but he started telling me about his ICU stay. He had had um, uh, an endoscopic procedure and had a perforated esophagus and developed septic shock. And he mentioned the ventilator that he was intubated for a few weeks, but that was it. All he could focus on during that conversation was what it was like to have his limbs nailed to the ground in the middle of a forest while trees came crashing down on him and he couldn't flee. He couldn't get away and monsters were coming out of the sky. And um, he alluded to other things that he clearly still could not verbalize um like the trauma and the pain was so tangible and it was four years after his discharge when we were talking about this and i'm a complete stranger on the plane and he's sobbing to me telling me about how difficult rehabilitation was um we're learning how to sit stand walk swallow all those things were really hard and even painful but the hardest part of it all was for a year after discharge every time he closed his eyes He'd be lost back into that forest and into those scenarios. And I'm not even going to, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, now that I understand a little bit more, I, I'm not going to, I can't call them hallucinations or nightmares. Like they are experiences. What he experienced was real. So initially I was like, oh, that sounds like a bad nightmare. But to him, psychologically, they were so real as if they had physically happened. And I just found myself crying with him. I, I had no idea what to say. It was a, I'd worked in critical care for six, seven years. And that was the first time I was really talking to an ICU survivor, except for the ones that came walking back into the awakened walk in ICU and gave us high fives, right? Sure. So I thought, I had a lot of thoughts. I I was really disturbed by it, obviously. And I hoped that that was a one in a million case. I thought maybe that's a fluke. So I went to ICU survivor groups and I intended on asking questions like, has anyone else experienced this? But I didn't have to. Most of what they were talking about amongst themselves were experiences akin to what that survivor had told me. And that got me looking into the research about post-ICU PTSD, which led me into delirium, which led me to sedation. And I saw the huge contrast. Um, And, but it was mostly survivors. And I kept thinking as I read their testimonials, watched their conversations, if the ICU community knew this, they wouldn't practice this way. Um, I certainly wouldn't have, right? This is not what I got I got into medicine for. I didn't want to cause people life debilitating trauma. That that survivor on the plane, 
over four years later, still had not returned to his career. And I don't know, I didn't know at the time to ask, is it just because of his his psychological trauma or because of his cognitive deficits from the delirium he suffered? Mm -hmm. Um, But again, I didn't know that because we don't talk about that. We're not made aware of that. So we assume that patients are sleeping. And um, so I just compared that to all these conversations that I'd had, the nursing jokes we made at the nurse's station, right, during my travels. And I just realized that I had a responsibility to give those survivors a voice and protect future patients. I love that. That is that is amazing. I mean, you almost feel like you kind of um, owe it to the patients and their families, and you know, even us as healthcare workers, you know, providers, nurses, pharmacists, nurse practitioners, whatever the case is, to at least be aware of what we're doing. You know, um, I think you know, with the goal of this episode, isn't just to completely change you know, a hospital organization's practices, I mean, that would be the ultimate goal. But the kind of more of like the stepping stone approach is taking little steps over time to make sure we're practicing better, right? So thinking about the indication for sedation, um, how deeply are they sedated? Can we just try, you know, opioid boluses before we commit patients to long-term infusions, et cetera? Mm -hmm. And I think what you're doing with your podcasts and your consulting is super important because a lot of us, like you said, just aren't even aware that there is different ways to practice. And we're not aware of the damage that we could be, you know, causing patients inadvertently, obviously. Um, So I think it's really important work. And I thank you so much for doing it. Uh, I know when I first heard about it, I was also super surprised. Although I come from a place where uh, you and I were talking about I actually do feel like we're we're better than average, you know, in terms of our sedation. We do have a protocol that encourages light sedation, sedation interruptions, uh, early mobility, et cetera. But we are nowhere near, you know, having most of the patients walking around the unit. So I think even we still have a have a long way to go. And I would love to set out like a perfect algorithm and protocol that applies to every patient that works every time, right? Um but that's not the way it works, right? And we have the ABCDF bundle. We just um, struggle to fully apply it because we don't understand the why. So that's one of the first baby steps I feel is to make sure everyone understands the why, not just the task list, not just the how. The how is not even relevant until we understand the reality of our, quote, normal practices. Correct. And so now that we have a little bit of that background with the why, Let's get into a little bit of the clinical side of things. So could you walk me through like step-by-step step how you manage a patient that you intubate? For example, how do you do RSI? Is there specific meds or dosing you use for RSI? What do you start with in terms of sedation? What kind of ballpark doses are we looking at? What kind of infusions, if anything, are you using? Just kind of give me the nitty-gritty, the kind of the details of like, let's say, an example 40-year-old patient that walks into into an ED in Salt Lake City at your ICU, what does that process look like? Um, A lot of times it depends on what they need. I I didn't realize how rare we used um, paralytics until I worked elsewhere where it was just standard to give paralytic for every intubation. It really will, we'll have it drawn up just in case if we suspect it's going to be difficult airway, but it it, it is rare. But if we do give a paralytic, I talk about this in episode 28 with one of the pharmacists on that unit that mm. we usually give lower doses. The pharmacist will recommend, you know, why do we have to do one mic per kick? Is that because it's what 
absolutely necessary or is that what is easiest to remember? Um, when really the range is what 0.6 to 1.2 for rocaronium, you know, so Correct. I think you usually try to do more like a half mig per kick with the paralytics. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when you're just going to start a continuous infusion of sedation, I guess it doesn't make that big of a difference, right? How much paralytic you give as long as it does the job. The difference is we're not going to give a continuous uh, sedative after. So why not just give, we usually give automatate propofol fentanyl for those induction meds. Um, and if we have to give some level of a paralytic, um, we'll do some extra boluses of propofol at the end so that the paralytic wears off uh, sooner and that, um, but the patient can still come out and, and they don't come out with the same kind of agitation, emergence agitation that you experience when you do an awakening trial. It's like coming out of colonoscopy, but usually with even less propofol on board. Um, so it depends on the patient. We just assess as we go. But the the base um, induction meds we usually give are Tomidate, Propofol, and Fentanyl. Okay, interesting. So you kind of do like almost basically two induction agents with Tomidate and Propofol and then a little bit of Fentanyl. Because at my site, and I'm assuming at most other places, you know, we just do Etomidate, for example, or something like a ketamine, and then we give a paralytic. You know, um, I have never combined like an Etomidate plus a Propofol. And I have actually never even used propofol to intubate ever because I think a lot of us are afraid of the hypotension, right? right. That that is associated with propofol. It, so it's just kind of interesting it, like, to me. It's drawn up and it's there. Okay, gotcha. Um, but I think we start with a and fentanyl and then give propofol just as we're as we're going if we need more. Got it, got it. Okay, so it's not like a standard bundle where like every patient is getting some etomidate, some propofol, right. some fentanyl. It's just kind of case-by-case basis. You have your tools available. But what I'm hearing is probably normal normal doses of etomidate and then maybe a lower dose of a paralytic if needed and then maybe some propofol and fentanyl on the side just in case. Uh-huh. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And then when you, and for example, if you're in the emergency department, you intubate a patient with these doses, what orders are being put in by the provider? What are the nurses giving for sedation? Are you just letting them kind of wake up and see what the patient does without anything? Or are you giving a couple doses of Versed or an opioid or starting an infusion? Nothing. Nothing. So yeah, usually, unless there's an actual indication for it, right? But um. Mm-hmm. No, that's that to me is the part of the A to, a to F bottle that we miss. So A is assess for pain, right? How can we assess what the patient needs unless we um, can ask them or see actual physical manifestations of their needs? So if we automatically sedate them, how do we know if they're in pain? How do we know um, if they're suffering delirium? Um, and, and as far as Verse said, oh, we, Okay, all throughout the pandemic, that ICU, as far as I'm aware, never gave midazolam. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> right? That is, that is so, amazing. Um, and I think that's really hard for people to understand because when we automatically start sedation, we automatically increase the risks of delirium. We either cause, exacerbate, or prolong it. So by the time uh, we do take off sedation or give a break from sedation, the delirium is there it's it's hot and heavy when you take off sedation you unmask it and then you have this crazy agitation or complete hypoactive delirium so it's hard to imagine that's why i give the analogy or liken it to waking up from a colonoscopy 
um, mm-hmm. or like in the PACU, but even less sedation than that. So they're, they'll, they'll be a little foggy. Some patients come out smiling. Oftentimes they're, they're taking it. They need a minute, right? It's not comfortable to be intubated. Sure. But the, the writhing, the thrashing, the trying to pull out the endotracheal tube, but that is what you see later on with delirium. You don't, you might see some coughing, some gagging, maybe like they're trying to touch the endotracheal tube mm-hmm. when they first come out, depending on what they were like before, prior to intubation. But it, there's a huge contrast in the level of agitation. And most patients, you can reason with them because their coping mechanisms are still intact. So we can see what they need. If they need something, that's great. We can, we can give them whatever they need. Um, like you said, start with the opioids. Um, if they have real anxiety, like baseline anxiety, why not treat it like um, anxiety, like we treat anxiety outpatient, right? So we, if someone has real anxiety, not just delirium, but real anxiety, it's um, why not give them a little bit of clonopin down their feeding tube? Start with mm-hmm. 0.5 BID, maybe TID, titrate up. They can help navigate that um, because they can be a part of that because they can tell us what they need for the most because part. Because they're awake, correct, and yeah. not deeply sedated. Okay. Yeah. So, and I've asked patients repeatedly, would you rather be sedated right now? I've asked probably dozens of patients that, and no one has said yes. And then other podcast listeners have told me that they've done the same because I'm all about patient autonomy, right? So I guess we can give them that option. If we do, it could, and this is a whole other topic and I have a whole other episode on it, but we, we tell patients all the time before surgery what the risks are. Do we tell patients or families what the risks are with prolonged sedation and immobility? Right. So I, yeah, I, if, yeah. I, if a patient were to say, I want to be sedated, I feel like I'd be obligated to say, okay, so just let you know, this increases your chances of dying, having post-ICU PTSD, post-ICU dementia, um, tracheostomy, prolonged time on the ventilator, lo- longer time in the hospital, other hospital acquired complications. You know, I, I would be obligated to say this could be life altering and life ending, but if that's what you want, that's fine. But we don't, we don't have that discussion oftentimes because we're not even aware of it ourselves. That's fair. And, you know, a a point that I always make with the learners that I have on rotation with me, for example, is, you know, we see somebody get RSI and it just looks so uncomfortable and it looks so scary. And it and it probably is. Um, and you know, a lot of the nurses and providers and and we all as healthcare workers sometimes joke, like, hey, if I'm ever intubated, just knock me out, put me on a verse and infusion. I don't want to remember anything. But when you're actually there in that moment as the patient, you know, it's really hard to think about, but the experience I'm getting from patients and from providers like you is it's not as awful as it looks and as we make it seem. And we would rather actually not be deeply sedated if we were in that situation, which is actually better for us, although it looks very horrific from the outside. And that to me is very, very interesting. Oh, no, yeah. It's been fascinating doing this podcast and interviewing people and talking to people in the community. I learned so much. I've never been intubated myself. So I started to ask my patients, what are you experiencing? You know, how bad is it? Um, and no one has wanted to be sedated. And very rarely do they ask or demand for things like opioids. But there was a podcast listener just recently. Um, she's been one of the biggest advocates for this in her unit. And so we've been in contact and I've tried to help her, you know, give her tools for advocacy. And she ended up septic and she was intubated herself. And before she went in, she had, to, she had a cat bite. So she, before she went into surgery, knowing that she may be um, still on the ventilator after, she demanded to be allowed to wake up. She made it extremely clear, wrote it out for them. And they didn't know what to do with her, right? Because that was a totally <laughs> new experience. And um, 
She said it was really uncomfortable to be intubated, but it really helped for her to have opioid boluses. And she could tell them that I want, you know, 25 of fentanyl. And so that <laughs> wow. her acclimate, you know, get over some of the air hum- hunger that she felt initially. She also was so much more comfortable laying on her side. It helped her sleep better to lay on her side. And so she had her own long hour. She was suctioning her mouth while on this on laying on the side, unrestrained, calling her shots, and said she was so glad she was not sedated. And she was off the ventilator in like a day and a half, which had she been sedated. And she had all the, the risk factors for delirium. Could she have been locked into this cycle of sedated, awakening trial, coming out agitated from the delirium, being resedated, and then she could have ended up, ended up intubated because she was sedated and sedated because she was intubated, right? Absolutely. So, so grateful that she had advocated not to be sedated, though it was uncomfortable. She said she was glad. Another story that comes to my mind, my mind is episode number two, I think, of my podcast. I interview with Susan East and she is a three times ARDS survivor. And the first time she got the classic cocktail, right? Deep sedation and mobility for weeks in her mind, she saw babies burn and she was trying to save them. And it was real and vivid to her. And then she came out of her coma and she couldn't barely lift a finger, right? She had terrible rehabilitation. She like, she left her LTAC, um, pretty much AMA had her husband just scoop her up and take her out because it was so traumatizing to be there and had a friend rehabilitate her. That was a physical therapist. So then without knowing the research or anything about, you know, this project didn't exist, right? This information is not that accessible to survivors. Nonetheless, on her own accord, she went to an attorney and she had documents drafted protecting her from sedation. So she was essentially DNS, do not sedate. So the next two times she had ARDS, she was not sedated and her outcomes were totally different. And she said on my podcast, she said, I'm not afraid of ARDS, which to me is impressive. I'm not afraid of the ventilator. I am terrified of sedation. Do not sedate me. So that that, is, that's amazing. So we say, just give me all the meds, knock me out. But survivors will tell you for the most part, they are not as comfortable as they look. Correct. Correct. And, you know, getting into more of the nitty gritty, I feel like there's going to be some listeners, some nurses, some providers out there that are just going to say, well, you know, you probably just have higher staffing ratios and it's a lot more work to care for an alert patient or, you know, ask questions like you must just restrain all these patients then that aren't deeply sedated. What do you say to those patients? What do you say to those people? What are, what are the staffing ratios? Is it harder or easier as a nurse to take care of these patients? So normal staffing ratios are two patients to one nurse, unless there's a high, higher acuity, CRT, things like that. Um, Which is typical, right? Across the nation yeah. for the most part, I'd imagine. Yeah, it's, it's normal. Um, for RTs, it's like four to six ventilators to an RT. Um, physical and occupational therapy are shared with the med surge floor, but ICU does have a priority, which I think is um, a smart investment for the hospital. Um, I feel like there's less; it's less laborious for the floor when you hit him strong in the ICU, right? Mm-hmm. And then um, there's an intensivist and NP on for 16 beds. Um, this was before COVID and now post-COVID. During COVID, obviously everything basically doubled up, but they continue this process of care. Um, and as far as restraints, that is, yeah, that's the question I always get. Um, um, it is a little painfully ironic that some ICUs do not allow physical restraints. Um, and I think it's obviously because of the correlation, some causation of 
those ICP PTSD and delirium and in regards to restraints, um, what we're missing is the root cause of the need for restraints, um, which is delirium. So when we give patients delirium with sedation, then we have a higher use of restraints and higher rates of post-ICU PTSD. And obviously restraints play into some of the trauma during delirium, but it's I don't think so much that it's that the uh, restraints cause the PTSD. It exacerbates it, but the root cause is a delirium. So in 2019, they published this study involving 20,000 patients and they looked at the ABCDF bundle and they found that with greater compliance with the ABCDF bundle, there was less restraint use. So essentially the less sedation used, the less restraints were required. So yes, that team does use restraints, um, but it's it's not on everyone. Um, sometimes patients will even ask t- to be restrained at night. I probably w- would because I have, you know, I, I'm a little bit of a sleepwalker. So I'd be afraid of pulling up my tube if I woke up in the middle of the night. So sometimes they ask for it. Sometimes we just do it at night. Um, sometimes it has to be around the clock. It wholly depends on what they need, um, but it's not as common as you think it would be. And I don't think it's as, as traumatizing. Um, if when patients know, okay, I'm going to be restrained, so I don't pull touch my tube at night, that's different than thinking um, my kids are kidnapped, I'm kidnapped, and now I'm tied down. Right, and this is just—I love hearing you say that because this is just proof that I can bring, you know, to my site, and that other people can bring to their sites and say, like, look. These awake and walking ICUs have the same staffing ratios as you, the same competent nurses, the same competent physical therapists, occupational therapists, providers, pharmacists, et cetera. Um, they're using the, the same amount of restraints as you, all the same meds, all like the very similar patient populations. So if they can do it, you can definitely do it. Because I'd imagine one of the big pushbacks you get is, oh, well, like you were saying, oh, your ICU is just different. Like you must just have very not sick patients or you must just have, you know, very uh, much better staffing ratios, but it's not the case, right? Like your ICU in Salt Lake City is the same that we would see in St. Paul. And it's the same that somebody would see in somewhere in Florida um, the overall. Is that we've, we've all treated COVID. You know, it had one of the highest acuity COVID units in the state of Utah. And they didn't send patients certain places um by by acuity, you know, when it came to certain COVID units, it was wherever there was a bed open, you go. If it can take high acuity, that's what they're going to get, unless maybe they were ready for ECMO. Otherwise, they were getting patients just as sick as the hospitals down the road. But the outcomes were totally different. So stay tuned. Hopefully, in the next year or so, they're going to have a retrospective study come out comparing the outcomes, and I hope they also compare health healthcare costs. Um, I would love to see that study. I would love to do an episode on it and talk about it because we know from the, you know, the PADIS guidelines and, and things like that, that outcomes for people and patients that are uh, more uh, lightly sedated outcomes are better you know, across the board. So I'm really excited to see, you know, some data and even some outcomes from from you guys on your site. That'd be That'd be awesome. And I have a number of um, interviews with nurses, even some travel nurses that have done this um, process of care and compared it to deeply sedating patients. And so I think it's my episode 75. We specifically focus on the workload. And it's a travel nurse saying, hey, guys, it's a lot easier to have patients awake and walking um, and to do it this way, to do it right away. So as far as workload, you know, we don't have enough staff. We can't we're all burnt out, this kind of thing. So this process of care ultimately can be easier. When we talk about early mobility, most people imagine 
trying to move a patient after they've been sedated for weeks where they can barely hold their own head up. And that's a lot of risk, a lot of work. Um, It's not fun. The difference is most of these patients do not get to that point. It is so much easier to let a patient um, wake up right away when you don't have delirium. They're not thrashing. They're not trying to pull out their tube. It's not a bucking rodeo. That alone, delirium alone doubles the nursing hours required for care. So when you prevent delirium, you automatically simplify your life as well as the patient's. And then early mobility, actually doing it early. So if a patient walks in, for example, with COVID, they're hypoxic, they have this high work of breathing, they're intubated. Well, now they don't, they have, they're oxygenated. They're not working for every breath. Why not? Why can't they walk if they just walked into the ED and barely and collapsed? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that therein lies the difference, right? They can get themselves out of bed. So in the COVID units, nurses were oftentimes um, helping patients get to the chair when they're the only person in the room and they're just a standby assist holding the ventilator tubing. That is so much easier than getting a 200-pound flaccid adult up into a chair with a lift and calling that mobility. Right. So early and actual progressive mobility, that prevents delirium, that treats delirium, and that makes it all easier for everybody. They're on the ventilator for far less time, in the ICU for less time. Um, They're less likely to return to the ICU. So that same ABCDF bundle showed a 46% decrease in readmissions. That has to decrease the workload for our teams. So we just have to look at it differently when we're talking about our staffing crisis. From my perspective, we can't afford to continue to do what we're doing. When they say we don't have the resources to support this process of care, the A to F bundle, even in the lesser doses of it, showed a 24 to 30% decrease in healthcare costs. So how can we afford to continue to do what we're doing? Right. I feel like we need a massive revolution of mm-hmm. the ICUs. And thank you for starting that or being one of the people that's that's starting that process. And I think it's just so amazing to to think about this. And if it's abstract for any of the listeners, I should have mentioned this earlier, but uh, Callie has a great um, Instagram page. It's um, Dayton ICU Consulting. That's D-A-Y-T-O-N. And I think just a picture is worth a thousand words and a thousand hours of us talking about it on a podcast. But you post a lot of great um, things, a lot of studies, a lot of pictures of patients uh, walking and um, while intubated. There's people playing guitars while intubated. And it's just really mind-boggling for somebody like me to see, uh, but this is truly what what the norm should be. And to kind of bring it back to that human element, so we talked about the why, you know, why we should, you know, move towards awake and walking ICUs. We talked about how to do it a little bit, which is mostly just avoiding sedatives and avoiding deep sedation in general. But bringing it back to like the human aspect, um, looking at your Instagram page, listening to both of your podcasts, is can you share with us some personal anecdotes? Do you have a story or two that sticks out that kind of keeps you going or motivates you to keep doing this work in terms of patients that have had you know bad outcomes from being deeply sedated? And then on the flip side, those patients that have done supremely well with um, coming out of your ICU where they received little to no sedation. So about the time that I met that survivor on the plane, 
when that was hot on my mind, um, I, I feel like it was just a week or two after that. I was in the cafeteria of a hospital and someone said, hey, I know you. And I I looked and it was this woman that looked so familiar. And suddenly I was like in this flashback of the ICU room, her ventilator, her anxiety. Um, and she interrupted my thoughts and she said, you were my nurse in the ICU. And I, and I thought I hated you. You made me walk when I was tired and scared. And um, she kind of went on and on. And I, 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 it was awkward, right? I, I thought, yeah, that's probably true. Um, and then my flashback continued. At baseline, she used a motorized scooter. She had a lot of comorbidities. And she was um, kind of had trach and peg all over her crystal ball if she didn't move. So um, I was going to try to explain to her, you know, hey, we were trying to do the best thing for you and all those things, right? But but she um, suddenly I realized that she had me this big bear hug. Um, you know, she was like leaning over her walker and embracing me. And um, she said, but you saved my life and I have loved you ever since. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, it was just a profound moment. And I, I had to think about it for a while after that. And I still ponder it. Like, what did she mean by you saved my life? Compared, why why was her response so different than the survivor on the plane? Um, but she did discharge home. She she would write on her board, "I do not want to go to a nursing home," and we would use that as a discussion. Well, then you have to get up. You have to walk. Um, and she didn't want to, but she did. I mean, she could barely walk at baseline, right? But we pushed her. And sometimes that happens in the wake and walk. And I see you. I have a whole case study and episode on that. Um, and pictures on my. Instagram of a guy that hadn't walked in six weeks, could not walk. That's why he developed pneumonia and he walked out of there. Um, and so that happened. And that's basically what happened to her. She had better functional status when she left the RICU, but she recognized that she survived because of us pushing her to walk. And she had just pieced it together even before I fully had the big picture. You know, I worked in ICU for so many years, but we're so narrow focused. And she gave me this big insight of, the fact that she went home to her partner and her dog and she resumed quality of life was because of what we did in those early stages of her acute and critical illness. So that really changed my mind. And so that gives me more value when I think back to certain experiences like showering patients on the ventilator or even some of the death experiences I've had. Um, I feel like death is so can be so beautiful and it was so many times in that ICU. Um, I could ask patients, what's your favorite song? What what do you miss eating? What do you want to eat? Or when it's time to go, when it's time to terminally extubate, um, they get to make that decision. So I saw that repeatedly where they say, I, I'm done, or I understand that this isn't going to get better. I'm done. And they could pick what music they want, who was there. I had a, a someone with terminal cancer who didn't know he had cancer until he was intubated. He filled out his pension paperwork. This is over the weekend. They had people from his work come and make sure that he had his pension paperwork signed so his wife would receive all the possible pension from him. He would not go. He would not terminally extubate until that was signed, and he was able to and made that decision. Um, I had, yeah, just when people tell you to go, they just, they can have it on their own terms to some degree. The family is not burdened with that decision. Um, you can play their favorite music. Um, you know, sometimes they're like, I just want uh, a Diet Coke slushie from 7-Eleven. And we're like, aye, aye, Captain. Mm -hmm. We're on it. You know, your, your death, your way, right? Um, one guy had, he was in his 30s. He was a widow. He had, I think, three little kids. 
and he had severe ARDS. Um, I think he also had leukemia. Um, but he had a fiance that he loved and she basically stepped in as a mom for his kids, but they weren't married. And so, um, he got to the point where he was really struggling to oxygenate with movement. We knew that he had to be prone and paralyzed, but he wanted to make sure that he was married to his fiance before he did that. So we rushed and found someone that had the authority to marry them. They even did some flowers, cake. They made this quick little ceremony by the afternoon. Signed the paperwork. He was prone and paralyzed and he did not survive. Oh, wow. But had he been sedated just because he was intubated, he would not have had that. Nor the peace of mind to know that his kids were going to be taken care of while he was facing death. So it just it, there's just so many experiences like that. And on my podcast, I interview survivors of the Wake and Walk in ICU, and they talk about, yes, the tube was uncomfortable. No, I'm not traumatized by it. And I'm so grateful I got to make the decisions and connect with my wife. Like one survivor said, I don't think my wife could have endured that experience if I wasn't there to support her even through it. Um, and we look at COVID, the PTSD in family members from COVID. So much of it is because of the isolation, the disconnect. They're not able to be involved, but when People are awake and communicative. Their families can actually be involved. So everything's just better. (laughs) It is. And, you know, I, I really wish that there's just tons and tons and tons of, of nurses and, and providers that listen to this episode and, and hear about you. You know, it might be the most important podcast, um, that you listen to, uh, that being Callie's, not mine, <laughs> um, because it, it is just so profound, you know, and I'm sure you have thousands of these stories and we could talk about this for hours. I mean, you probably have hundreds of hours of recorded anecdotes and, and patient and family experiences. And unfortunately we don't have the time to go over that in, in my episode. Um, but I thank you so much for, for sharing your stories, for sharing your insight. I think it's just very important to hear this information too from a, a nurse and then now a nurse practitioner and a provider because I feel like at some sites, especially like mine, the pharmacist does a lot of the the nagging, you know, of the team. Oh, can we get rid of sedation? Can we get rid of sedation? And, you know, I think pharmacists are are put in that role. But I think it's so good hearing it from the horse's mouth, right? Like hearing it from a nurse that worked with these patients and I'm now a provider that works with these patients that we can keep patients on little to no sedation while they're intubated. And not only we can do it, but we should do it. And the patients will thank you for it. And you'll have better outcomes and you'll save money, which is the least important thing, but you will. And it'll just be a overall better experience for everyone. So thank you so much for sharing your experiences. Do you have anything else that you want to add? Do you want to give me like a 30-second pitch to all the nurses listening about (laughs) awake and moving ICUs? Give me me the Shark Tank tank version of why the nurses should pay attention. It's obviously hard for me to summarize all of this, right? Because any any objection, I could do a podcast episode on it or I've done it, whether it be restraints, workload, um, unplanned extubations, things like that. Everything gets better with this process. Um, we, I, I often hear we all we can focus on is survival right now, right? They're in the ICU. They're on death's row. We're just trying to get them to survive. If that is true, if that is our only focus, then that alone is reason to do this. The A to F bundle in all its variation of approaches decreased seven-day mortality by 68%. 
So if all you care is, is keeping your patient alive, then you're going to avoid lethal treatments such as sedation and immobility, and you're going to minimize the duration dose of those interventions. So this is the key way to get your patients to survive and thrive, which is really why we got into medicine. So by applying this approach, uh, people reconnect with why they even got into their careers and their fulfillment, their comfort, their joy exponentially increased. And it's just fun as a consultant to watch teams um, improve their workplace environment, improve their burnout, heal from the PTSD from the pandemic, watch patients succeed, get to know their coworkers, trust their coworkers. They work better together. They're more supported. Nurses aren't left alone with all the burden of delirium. Um, it's prevented and treated effectively when they work together as a team. And I always tell pharmacists, you can speak up. If we were to treat sedation like we do antibiotics, you would be very vocal about ensuring that we have good sedation stewardship. We would. <laughs> you would never. So even in the EMR, I have patients or I have teams change the EMR as far as you making it so that you have to say why sedation is being ordered. What is the indication? We would never give an antibiotic without clarifying why we're giving an antibiotic, right? Correct. We also, you always make sure, is the antibiotic still needed? Can we discontinue it? We would do the same with sedation. So pharmacists have an obligation to make sure that we're not providing lethal medications. And so, yes, it's hard to say that to nurses. I completely understand. I had, during the pandemic, I had a nurse come up and say, I need an Ativan drip. <laughs> the only time I'd ever put someone on Ativan drip, I think it was during uh, an episode of Catatonia. I just, <laughs> my, I was just dumbfounded at first. And I thought, okay, she, it was an older nurse from a different generation, obviously different facility. And I, I, I just realized we have to explain the why. So I said, who's going to clean up that mess? And, she's and like, Callie, I got to say, and that's the norm, I would imagine, at most centers, you know, especially during COVID, there was a lot of benzo continuous infusions everywhere. And <laughs> a lot of, I'm sure your organization is obviously more proactive, but a lot mm -hmm. of teams are still stuck there. Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, mm -hmm. midazolam, it doesn't affect the blood pressure. They're really sedated. <laughs> this is great, right? So we're still stuck there in a lot of ways, but we have to teach the wise to say, no, are you an idiot, right? That's not going to work. So when we explain, well, you know, for every one milligram of midazolam, there's a six to 7% increased risk of dying or of, of delirium and delirium doubles the risk of death. You know, I think pharmacists have a good opportunity to educate and explain the why. Um, I know that we're all, we're all busy, but we have to make this part of our discussions. We can, we shouldn't just say delirium. We can say acute brain failure until we organ recognize it as an organ failure. We're not going to change. So pharmacists speak up, put yourself out there, educate, advocate. You are an essential part of the ABCDF bundle and you're going to help bring these changes. I love that. Thank you so much for the shout out. And I agree to all the pharmacists listening. Uh, we have an obligation to do this. We should do this. I was trained to do this. Obviously not as, um, you know, optimally as, as you guys were in, in, in Utah, but uh, hopefully it's something that we can continue to work on. And for those of you wondering what the ABCDEF bundle is, I know we talked about it a lot. Now, don't worry, I'll post some links in the references that kind of goes over all of this data, all of these guidelines, what these abbreviations mean. And just to wrap everything up, Callie, what else do you have going on? I know you've toured the US and the world uh, remotely or not. What are your biggest takeaways from this work that you've been doing? And then what are you looking forward to in the future? 
Um, you know, though I spent seven years practicing in this awakened walking ICU and accepting that as the norm, um, I didn't really know what the ADEF bundle was. I didn't know that that's what we were practicing. Um, so when I went elsewhere, I heard, you know, remote mention of it. And now that I've gone into the research more, that's when I've really tried to figure out what is the ABCDF bundle. And then I've held that up to what are we actually practicing at the bedside? So one of the biggest takeaways I've realized is that when we first started trying to move the ABCDF bundle forward, one, we didn't explain the why. We did not adequately educate us to what patient perspective is, what's what's really happening during and after medically induced comas, things like that. So then it was really hard to push these things forward. Also, we adapted the ADF bundle um, in this like gray zone. Instead of just saying, we're going to just not sedate if we don't need sedation, allow patients to wake up, mobilize, make it easier for everyone. We still held on to our habitual practice of sedating everyone because that was safe and comfortable in our minds, right? So the ADF bundle became this... um, start sedation on everyone, and then try to lighten it and try to take it off sooner. Um, And yet no one had the true vision. And so in this 2019 study, one of the researchers, Dr. Brenda Pun, said that the objective and the goal of the ABCDF bundle is to have patients who are more awake, cognitively engaged, and physically active to facilitate patient autonomy and the ability to express unmet physical, emotional, and spiritual needs. So when I tour with ICUs, I noticed that we're missing that vision. No, they're like, yeah, we have the ABCDF bundle, meaning that they have CAM, RAS, SAT, SBT in their EMRs. That doesn't mean that they have the ABCDF bundle ingrained into their culture and their practices. Unless we have this vision of having patients that are awake, mobile, and having the reins in their care, um, we're not truly practicing the ABCDF bundle if that's not what we're working towards. And then with the ADF bundle, we know that it decreases mortality by 68%. If that was a medication, we'd have 100% compliance, right? Decreases <laughs> right. delirium by 25 to 50%, decreases mechanical ventilation, restraint use, decreases readmissions by 46%, and patients are 36% more likely to discharge home. But obviously, those results are from a spectrum, right? But in that 2019 study, the most important takeaway is that it was dose-dependent. Outcomes were dose-dependent. So if those were the outcomes with this awakening and breathing trials later on down the road, and only 12% were actually on their feet. If those, if there was that much of an improvement in outcomes, imagine with an awakened walking process, how much better the outcomes are. So this is really how we save lives. And so I've noticed with working teams, by teaching that, giving that vision, that gives them the why and then the tools to, to then practice the how and truly practice the ABCDEF bundle. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Do you have anything else that you want to say or add or anything that you want to mention? Um, If you're trying to convince your team of this, I have um, resources under my resources tab on my website, www.daytoniceuconsulting. There are case studies and each of my podcast episodes have transcriptions and citations. So, and you can search by topics. If you go to scroll to the bottom, the 110 episodes thus far are organized by topics. So if you want your colleagues to hear survivors of medically induced comas talk about what they experienced, go to those survivors. If you want to hear um, survivors of awake and walking ICUs talk about their experiences, go to that. If you want to hear about clinicians, people from your own discipline, it's organized by topics, utilize it, check out the citations, share those with your colleagues. And if you need further help, please let me know. I'm obviously obsessed and anxious to help. If you go to the YouTube channel, 
Dayton ICU Consulting, there are also videos with patient testimonials as well. And then if I was a provider or some type of manager in a healthcare uh, facility, how could I get you to come and talk to us and and teach us about your practices? Um, There's a consulting uh, button on the top right corner of my website where you can make an appointment with me and then we can talk about where your team's at, your current practices, what your needs are, what your barriers are, and we can make a game plan. Perfect. I love it. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening. And as always, thank you so much for your time. And thank you for wanting to learn more about pharmacotherapy and awake and alert ICUs. If you have any comments or anything you'd like to add to this episode, please give me a shout out on the ERRX podcast Instagram page or reach out to me on errxpodcast.com. I'd love to respond to all comments and criticisms. I also want to take a second to shout out Friend of the Pod, who chose to stay anonymous, for their donation on buymeacoffee.com. Donations like this help keep the podcast running and free for everyone. If you'd like to sponsor an episode, the link to donate is super easy to get to. It's linked in the bottom of the episode description wherever you get your podcasts, on YouTube, and on the website. I'll see you next time. Oh.